0: We're starting to see, like, wow, Black women are organizers. They've been doing this work. They're the forgotten people in history that have shown up and voted time and time again. And we are those same Black women that have been, you know, kneeling with Kaepernick. We've been talking about issues. We have chance players in our leagues. Like, we are on the fringe of fringes of political and awareness league that you could possibly be. And so it, it, it couldn't be any closer to home, the connection.
1: Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast, I'm Dave Zirin. This week we're speaking to a basketball player for the New York Liberty of the Women's National Basketball Association who made news when they led their team and the Seattle Storm off the court before the national anthem. Their name is Laisha Clarendon. Before we get to Laisha Clarendon, I've got some choice words. I wanna read them beforehand to explain why I think uh, Laisha Clarendon is such an important figure right now in the current context. Also, I've got Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down awards and more, but first, let me read you this about what just took place in the WNBA. Okay, look, as the sports world limps towards a reopening, complete with bubbles, fake crowds, and COVID nursing stations with round-the-clock testing that the rest of us couldn't hope to access, we're also seeing something new. Safe protest. Part of the spectacle in the new sports world is seeing which athlete is now taking a knee before or during the anthem, wearing a Nike NBA-approved racial justice slogan on their uniforms, or raising a fist as the anthem plays. These gestures, which would have been absolutely electric a year ago, have become commonplace, acceptable, and a hallmark of the woke capitalism that the sports world, not unlike other Fortune 500 companies in 2020, seemed desperate to embrace. On the one hand, this is a recognition among the forces of capital that the younger generation they want to attract is more diverse, more left wing and less tolerant of intolerance. The word has gone out. Racist brands, racist statues and even racist franchise owners are in peril. Yet on the other hand, we need to see this for what it is a commodification of dissent. It's the monetizing of the bravery of those still in the streets getting gassed in protest of both racist policing and Trump's secret federal army of extra-legal goons. There's no money in getting pepper sprayed, but there's a great deal to be made by cashing in on the valor of those being gassed. Now, in this atmosphere of co-optation, leave it to the WNBA to raise the bar, push the envelope, and do what the rest of the sports world for all their panic gesturing is refusing to do. Make people, particularly white people, uncomfortable. As basketball legend Bill Russell said 50 years ago, we've got to make the white population uncomfortable because that's the only way to get their attention. It's the WNBA athletes almost alone right now willing to live by that credo. Before their opening night contest between the Seattle Storm and New York Liberty, Laisha Clarendon and Brianna Stewart addressed those watching. Laisha Clarendon, who we're gonna talk to in just a moment, said, we are dedicating this season to Brianna Taylor, an outstanding EMT who was murdered over 130 days ago in her home. But that wasn't all. Clarendon also announced that the entire season would be dedicated to black women who had been killed because of racist, misogynistic violence. She said that it would be dedicated to the Say Her Name campaign, a campaign committed to saying the names and fighting for justice for black women, both cis women and trans women, so often forgotten in this fight for justice. They said, "'We will say her name, Sandra Bland, Atatiana Jefferson, Dominique Remy Fells, and Brianna Taylor. We will be a voice for the voiceless.' Then, after 26 seconds of silence, for Brianna Taylor, because Taylor was 26 when she was killed. The teams walked off the court just prior to the anthem. Most news reports have said the walk-off was during the anthem. This is false. As Clarendon said to ESPN, kneeling doesn't even feel like enough to protest. I don't want to hear the anthem. I don't want to stand out there. I don't want to be anywhere near it, because it's ridiculous that justice and freedom are not just offered to everybody equally. This is garnering outrage across the right-wing edge of the sports world. It has Republican Trumpist Senator Kelly Loeffler, a WNBA franchise owner, rage-tweeting at the league like a warped version of Donald Sterling, a Donald Sterling who doesn't need to be recorded surreptitiously to let their racist freak flag fly. Yet no matter the backlash, these are the sentiments that need to be expressed amid the rush to grab woke capitalism's golden ring. These are the sentiments that Colin Kaepernick sacrificed his football career to raise in 2020, taking a knee or raising a fist while wearing corporate safe slogans, living in a bubble with round-the-clock health care, doesn't do much. But WNBA players like Clarendon are seeking out ways to practice real dissent in a set of bizarre playing circumstances that seem almost fictional, more out of the mind of Kurt Vonnegut than Adam Silver. Just as black women have created, led, and pushed the envelope in the fight for black lives since the movement's beginnings... They are also in the world of sports, reminding us what radical dissent looks like and why it is so critical to break the chains of commodification and continue to make onlookers uncomfortable. It might not be great for business, but it's vital for the rest of us. And now let's talk to the person who helped organize that protest on the WNBA's opening night, Laisha Clarendon. So... Every person with a social conscience that I've met has an origin story of how they became political. Someone they met, an experience they had, a book they read. What was yours?
0: Oh, that's a good question. So I was in college and um, we, you know, in college we wear like the pink for uh, breast cancer. And then we, I think, even started wearing like green ribbons for Sandy Hook. Mm-hmm. So I played at Cal. Um, we have like these awareness months, these moments in sports, right. That are political, even in (laughs) college basketball. And I had the idea, um, in the shower actually of just like, wait, why don't we have a pride awareness game in college? Like, like gay people are murdered by the police. Trans people are murdered, like LGBT people face high, um, risk of violence, evictions from their home, you know, all of that stuff. And long story short, it didn't end up working out, but that was kind of my moment that I was like, wait. There's more to be done here, especially with this platform in sports, and that was my senior year. And so it was kind of the perfect timing to catapult me into my pro career, where you have a lot more autonomy and opportunity to do things with your shoes and with activism, and you're not quite hindered in the same way as college.
1: Now, you mentioned, of course, you went to Cal. That's, of course, Cal Berkeley. Was there anything about going to Berkeley that helped inspire your activism? Of course, it has that rich tradition.
0: Absolutely. It's funny because people always make the mocking joke of like, what do you do with your undergrad degree to people who get an education? Like, oh, you don't use your degree anyway. Mm. And like, quite literally, I was like a sociology major. So I used my degree, I was technically American studies, but it's a social like interdisciplinary major. And so I like quite literally used everything I was learning in undergrad, which was a course in race and class and gender and like the American history and how all those things intertwine how classism works. And so Berkeley is where I gained my consciousness. I didn't grow up with parents at home, like talking about the healthcare system or about voting or about, you know, any type of conscious attitude. So going to Cal really was that like awakening moment, first time away from home, sitting in a sociology class and being like, wait, what? Having that uh aha moment and that just awareness and awakening that, you know, lights you on fire, makes you angry. Like when you really learn how the world works and how, particularly um, in the U.S., things are set up so organized by race and class and gender.
1: No, absolutely. Um, that, that's so interesting to me because I've met other political athletes who come from Berkeley, like Scott Fujita, who played in the NFL, spoke out against uh, uh, Dick Cheney and in, in, in internment camps for Arabs and Muslims. I mean, it's just it's this rich history that runs through Berkeley. And that, yeah, you know, Dr. Harry Edwards was a sports sociologist there for so many years. I don't suppose you ever ran ran across him at Berkeley, did you, by chance?
0: I didn't, but it, yeah, it has that that culture and that history of like, how do you leave Berkeley not having gained some semblance of that?
1: Hmm. Now, uh, to take to fast forward to the present, I mean, you announced, of course, that the WNBA season would be dedicated to the Say Her Name campaign. Can you talk a little bit about what that is?
0: Yeah, so the Say Her Name campaign um, was started to highlight, to honor, to fight for justice for Black women um, in the fight against police brutality and violence, because so often Black women's names are not recognized. Um, You know, there's reasons why we, we knew George Floyd's name and we didn't know Breonna Taylor's and why people aren't marching for her. So that campaign was started... Very specifically to highlight Black women and to fight for them, and that's something our league—it was a no-brainer in that sense—to uh, represent Black women because that's that's a large makeup of our league, and so it was a perfect alignment.
1: Uh, do you see a parallel? I mean, you just mentioned some of it, but but parallel between the forgotten, killed, the marginalization of Black women at the heart of, who have been at the heart of the ba- Black Lives Matter movement but not to mention also the marginalization of the voices of black female athletes.
0: A hundred percent. And that's why I've been like screaming to the mountaintops about how like the WNBA is the movement. Like it literally is so aligned and it's, it almost makes me have to laugh at the pain of it. The fact that as a predominantly black league, we've been forgotten. We don't get the same, you know, marketing opportunities of let's play out like, a, you know, Megan Rapinoe again, I talked to her about that all the time about, like the women's national soccer team can get versus the women's national basketball team gets because they're predominantly black. And those factors that, that play into the way we view black women as beautiful, as desirable, as marketable. And so it's, it, that's what I mean with the perfect alignment. Like for us to stand up for these women, it's like, who else will? If black women are the only ones doing it at this moment. And we're starting to awaken to it in this country. We're starting to see like, wow, black women are organizers. They've been doing this work. They're, the forgotten people in history that have shown up and voted time and time again. And we are those same black women that have been, you know, kneeling with Kaepernick. We've been talking about issues. We have chance players in our leagues. Like we are on the fringe of fringes of political and awareness league that you could possibly be. And so it, it, it couldn't be any closer to home the connection.
1: Yeah. Uh, I, I, I noticed that when, when you made your speech about um, at center court, that you mentioned uh, Black trans women who've also been uh, victimized by violence. Um, that, that was very conscious, yes?
0: Yes, absolutely. So I think if we're, particularly as Black people too, if we aren't fighting for still the least of these in our own community, we're still part of the same problem. So we can't ask White people, Latinx people, all, like the whole world to care about only cis black men who are being murdered, right? We have to care about the cis black women who are being murdered, the queer black people being murdered, and specifically the black trans women who are being just disembodied and violently murdered um, not only by the police, but just by, you know, boyfriends, by loved ones, by um, society at large. And it's a very specific statement I wanted to make. and, And I think we will, and I want us to do something very specific to the trans community still um further to come in this season.
1: now, I'm so interested in the mechanics of how these campaigns come about. like when it when it comes to the say her name campaign, was that primarily from the league? Was it a demand of the players? I know you're the vp of the of the union. Was it negotiated? H- how did that decision come together?
0: <laughs> it was I mean, I just pushed the hell out of it like time and time again, and everyone was um. It was so we started the Social Justice Council this season, and that was a partnership between the union and the league. And so, first and foremost, there, this was a partnership that was born out of like the desire to want to work together and do something big this season. Um, and then, on top of that, it is ideas that come from players. And so, very early on, uh, I was pretty vocal about how we should have Black Lives Matter on the court. And then about how we should specifically dedicate the season to say her name, because that speaks directly to who we are and directly to the women who are forgotten. Um, So from then on, it goes like, okay, we're talking. The players want it. Socialize it amongst the players. Yeah, players all agree this would be great. And then it's like, okay, let's talk to the league and make sure we can do this dedication. Then the league has to say, let's talk to Nike and see if Nike can turn the shirts around in time to put say her name on the back and then to kind of have that chain of command um, and internal organizing that it takes to really get to that moment that we had this past weekend.
1: Mm. Now, of course, I want to talk to you about the the architecture, if you will, of organizing both teams to walk off before the anthem, which I really think is an unprecedented act in sports and social justice and politics. First, on on a very personal level, what was your motivation for doing the walk-off?
0: My motivation was I think we're beyond um, only kneeling for the anthem as it has become a performative act. Um, it's something that we've done back in 2016. Our league has done and shown solidarity with Colin Kaepernick, so I never want to minimize like what he's done and gone through. But kneeling at large in society has become uh, very performative. So I think we personally were at the point where I didn't want to stand there or be kind of near the anthem. I think we're at the point where um, frankly, it doesn't represent freedom and justice and equality and liberation for every American. And so in that way, for me, it's like, why are we even listening to the anthem every game? Because it, it doesn't represent everyone in this country. And it particularly doesn't represent freedom and justice for everyone in this league, i.e. Brianna Taylor and everything we're fighting for. We quite literally could be Brianna Taylor. So in that way, I think Um, It was a very intentional, deliberate opportunity to say, let's spend, you know, peacefully and let's peacefully protest and spend our time in the locker room. And, you know, I know it was reported wrong. We did not walk off during the anthem. We very intentionally left the court before it played.
1: Yeah. And what was your reaction to that? I mean, it was just like from ESPN to Fox News. Everybody had that word during the anthem and not before the anthem. How do you think they got that so wrong?
0: Yeah. I think it just started as it seems like from the the initial wrong report from ESPN. So that was really disappointing as one of our marquee partners that they didn't get it correctly from the beginning. And then, you know, once news gets out there, it's clickbait, it just spirals. And so we are asking them to please take that tweet down and correct it. And the people like Holly Rowe have fought to say like, no, that's not what happened. But we knew initially, if you I mean you do anything around the flag and the anthem, people are gonna have something to say. So On that note, we knew it wasn't going to be like, oh, they walked off, everyone just cheer for them across the board. We knew there was an opportunity for people to still have a discussion. Again, here we are talking about the flag and the anthem, not talking about the lives being lost and the people being murdered. And so for me, it was like, if you're still, if we're still talking about this four or five years later, and you are choosing to worry more about the anthem or a flag, and specifically an anthem and a flag that don't represent freedom and justice for all, like I don't know what to tell you. Like, I know you probably don't think my life matters because you're more worried about a flag than the fact that people are being murdered, and we've seen it on videotape.
1: Now, several prominent members of the right-wing grift squad have jumped onto this to to (laughs) slam you guys and all all the rest of it. You know, trying to you know increase their Q rating on the on the backs of your actions. Uh, And I was curious. other than like that sort of big name attack mode against you and the WNBA, what has the reaction been like?
0: It's been, um, you know, sometimes the negative feels louder. Like, I definitely got trolled a ton after that tweet. Like, I couldn't even see any of my positive mentions after what you kind had tweeted because it was just like, leave this country if you don't, you know, care about the flag. Like, all of that typical thing. No one cares about the W those just ridiculous things. Um, But on the flip end, you see people who are starting to understand and even talk about more publicly the work that the WNBA has always done. And so you have people being like, This is what I think similar to what you said, like this has not been done in sports. It's a very intentional act. Um, We are leading in this space like we've done so many times. We just don't always have the biggest platform and people don't always pay the most attention, i.e. to black women again to give them credit for what they've done. And so in that way, I think us starting the season, you know, a week before the NBA, us actually having this many TV games and national coverage has opened the door to see all the, the work we've been doing. And so in that way, I think people are starting to see that we are the leaders that we've always been.
1: Was it easy to get both teams on board? I mean, that's a hell of a coordinated thing to do a a double-team walk-off.
0: yeah. (laughs) What
1: what was that like?
0: It was actually getting both teams on board wasn't the hardest part. Um, It didn't get covered as much, but we actually got all 12 teams across the league did it this weekend. So no team stayed out there for the anthem. Um, and it, that was really powerful and I hope that gets covered a little more that it was a 12 team unified organized opening weekend. Like all of us were in the locker room for the Anthem. Um, and specifically with Brianna Stewart and like super jewel, those types of players on that league, like they're all for it. Like they specifically Sue and, and Stewie have been like an amazing white allies in this fight that they were like, let's do the media blackout, like pushing on every, every cylinder, every front. And so in that way, Getting both of our teams was honestly the easy part. It's organizing 12 teams across the league who want to do different types of protests to make sure we stand unified in that opening moment.
1: Mm. Brianna Stewart's an impressive character. I mean, do you feel like w- the WNBA has a lot to teach this country about what white allyship looks like?
0: Mm-hmm. I really do. Um, I want us to specifically continue to model that and maybe do some type of training while we're in here where we're all together because doing that type of racial reconciliation, that like uncomfortable work, I think is something that is better done in person. And I think we have a unique opportunity for someone like a Megan Rapinoe who's in the bubble, um, Sue Bird, Brianna Stewart to lead a group like that, pull in like a Glennon Doyle who's known to collect all of her white people and she talks about it frankly and do a training and talk about it more openly with the public to understand that the white allies in our league have a role to play. And like you said, we can model what it looks like. And we started to model it with um, our breaking t-shirts that we did. We had, we are Breonna Taylor. And then we had say her name shirts. And very intentionally we asked and the white players agreed. And like, Suey helped lead on this, but she was like, we shouldn't wear the, we are Breonna Taylor because Mm-hmm. we're not at risk of being murdered the same way NECA or Leija are in their own home. Like that would happen to them the same way it happened to Brianna Taylor. Like that's not happening to Stewie and Teresa plays Hans and the white players like Blake Dietrich in our league. And so in that way, we've already started to model how do you show up as a white player for your black teammates in this fight, in this league that we're all a part of.
1: Mm. See, I felt like the, the walk-off was an act of beautiful radical dissent in an atmosphere where, a lot of sports protests, as you said, has become kind of performative at this point. It was How conscious was that on your part to say, we need to push this envelope uh, and actually raise the level of conversation and raise the level of discomfort because of the ways in which, you know, you see, you know, pro sports franchise owners kneeling and police officers kneeling and all the rest of it?
0: Mm-hmm. It was really intentional and really conscious. And I think we're just we are beyond the stand there and lock arms. It's like that's where we were three or four years ago when Colin Kaepernick did this. Like we're at a different moment and that requires different risk, like you said, different um, opportunities, different creativity, different courage to walk off the court and not even stand out there because we are beyond the moment of like, let's be respectful and stand out there and kneel. Like it was, it's like, it was a no brainer in some ways of like, we cannot participate in this. And that was a very personal thing for me. It was like, we can't be a part of this and having the opportunity to talk to players around the league um, and getting them on board. It was just very intentional. And like I said, I don't think the, I don't think players should be on the court or the anthem should even be played in arenas anymore until we actually have freedom and justice and equality for people for everyone in this country, because why are, why are you asking? It's actually a pretty violent act to ask a black player, a black person in this country. And we do it in schools, even right. The pledge of allegiance. So we do the Anthem right before we go play. We were on a conversation internally and we were talking about the feelings that come up when you stand there for the Anthem and a few players and myself included, I was like, I am angry. I'm livid. I'm disgusted in terms of the injustice and the inequality and I care enough about this country and the place I live to fight for better. And that's the thing that the trolls, that Ted Cruz, that people will never, ever quote the second part of what I'm saying. They'll only quote the first part is that, like, we don't want to leave this country. First of all, my ancestors were brought here, so that's on y'all. Second of all, like, I do love this country. I was born here. This is the only home I know. And I'm patriotic enough to fight for better for all around me to demand better to demand that i know we were never truly included included as e- equal under the constitution but demanding that we're here and we're gonna get equal under the constitution one way or another and it's gonna happen and i hope it happens in my lifetime and we're pushing and we're making strides but that like it's the most patriotic thing you could do is fight for better policing better communities better health care so we truly do all have the opportunity to pursue liberty and, and freedom and happiness.
1: Now, do you ever look back at your 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 childhood in San Bernardino, San Burdu, and <laughs> think, think about uh, the ways that you were taught and uh, some of the lessons you were taught and how you wish you were maybe taught them differently about this country, about its history and the like?
0: Yeah, I do. I remember being in, um, I think it was high school and I remember going through history class and even asking like where are the other people like even only learning about black and white people and then we have like Cesar Chavez day where we learn like one day about farm workers or like farming and there's no other I was like where are Asian people like where and that dawned on me like why are we, we still only talk about history in terms of black and white people and there's so much diversity we don't talk about indigenous folks who literally land like we live on stolen land. And so I wish, particularly in school, I mean, there's reasons why we're not educated more about the real history of this country. We're we're very much taught a whitewashed version of history. And it's scary because it took me going to Berkeley and even going to Berkeley and taking specific classes because people go to higher education and they still might major only in business or only in something that they're not doing, you know, sociology, women's studies, American studies, where I very specifically got to learn the social justice, the social um, issues in this country and what those mean. So I wish, of course, like when I was growing up, I mean, my parents didn't have higher education and that's why they wanted me to get a higher education and through basketball was the opportunity to do that. And it was amazing to get it paid for, but so of course I wish they could have taught me more, but I I have better and now I'm kind of breaking that cycle and I can teach my family, my kids more, but I wish in the school system specifically We did a better job. I mean, you have some history books. I think I saw one like a few years ago in Texas that was saying like calling slaves migrant workers or like Mm -hmm. in the the way we're whitewashing history, even on plantations. We're talking we're like people get married on plantations like these should be museums like we just our history is so whitewashed and not true to what is happening. And it's sad because it's on the individual person to reeducate themselves and, and really understand. And that's a big problem in this country.
1: Now, I hate to ask this question, but it's almost required. Uh, Senator Kelly Loeffler, uh, you called her the anti-movement, and she just keeps pushing, trying to run for re-election based on demonization of the Black Lives Matter movement, demonization of the WNBA and those who stand with the WNBA, and certainly with players like yourself. Uh, Is there a place in the WNBA for someone who approaches, I guess, life like Senator Loeffler?
0: Is there a place – I keep asking the question why does she want to be a part of this league when she's known what we stood for. Um, she's known – I've been gay. She's met my wife. Like, we had pride games when I was there. We honored Stacey Abrams. And so we asked the question of why do you want to be a part of this league because you know our values, and our values say that we are going to fight for people who are forgotten – and people who matter and people who look like us because one of us quite literally could have been Brianna Taylor. And for me, it's a human rights issue. And so I just ask time and time again, why do you want to be in this league? If you don't align with us, and if you really do align with us, like great. So get on Um, board.
1: Nice. Okay. You've been so generous with your time. Uh, I, I get to ask you one geek out question, which is who's the toughest player to guard?
0: That's a good question. I mean, it it was Maya Moore, I have to say. Uh, Getting switched on her, especially when I was a little nugget weighing not what I weigh now my first couple of years of playing the dynasty that is Minnesota Lynx. Um, So it was definitely Maya Moore. Currently, I'll to give you – let's see, let's see, let's see. There's a lot of good ones. Um, Dewey's a tough one if you get switched on to thinking of another guard. I mean, Sue's so bouncy. I, actually, I'll give you Courtney VanderSloot. Like, she does not stop moving. And she doesn't quite get the credit of like a Steph Curry with shooting the step but but she, she literally, I don't, it's hard to guard her because she does not stop moving the entire game and it's exhausting.
1: Nice. And I'm in Washington, so obviously this is mystics country. So uh,
0: <laughs>
1: a lot of pride here about what's been going on in hoops here in DC. Um, and then my last question is, you know, this, you're, you're living in that bubble. You're living this life. Um, what music are you listening to right now to maintain at this moment in time?
0: Ooh, that's a good question, too. I got a good mix. Um, lately, I've been listening to In, um, in Defense of My Own Happiness. That's a good album. Um, some gospel listen to some Johnny Swim. I'm definitely like a slow jams kind of person, so I, I go with the vibe.
1: Nice, in, in defense of my own happiness is something very special. That's a really good one. Joy Ola, Ola Dokin right? Am I getting that right?
0: Yeah, that's why I didn't want to butcher her name. Yeah, I think that's how you say it, Joy Ola Oladokun,
1: Ola yeah, yeah, I'm listening. I'm have to quote us. That's awesome. The album
0: is amazing, it's so good.
1: That's awesome. Oh, God, I, I got my producers like sending me texts saying, I got to ask you about life in the bubble. Is you, are you maintaining? What's the, what's the best and worst? Part? <laughs>
0: oh. The best and worst parts. Um, let's see. The best parts are for me is seeing this many people. Like I was sheltering in place. California was one of the first to really lock down. And so this is like, I'm at Disneyland basically in terms of seeing people in crowds. So Mental health wise, excuse me. It's been nice to like interact a little bit and just see people like, "Hey, how's it going?" and be around teammates. That's been awesome, um and it and it has been kind of cool. And saying like, "We're all going to be, we really are family after this." Because mm-hmm. losing to someone and have to seeing them, see them in the line, or see them like go sit by the pool, or like see that you know team you hate or that coach you like you can't stand, and then you have to see them like doing the most human thing like eating. And so that's a really funny experience to see the referees, particularly like I saw them out with like sunbathing and I'm like, wow, like that's the rest. And so in that way, I think it's really funny that like we all have to get over ourselves in this moment, in this bubble, because like we're family, like we're basically at each other's houses, hanging out the entire summer. The tough parts have been um, on mental health days. It's just you're in a loop. Like I'm like, I feel like I go like to the gym, to the weight room, like to get food in line and that you don't I don't cook because I'm in the hotel and I just feel like I'm stuck on like a triangle and that's like all I do and so mental health wise there's some tough days where you it's really hard to break up the repetition and the monotony and there's no escape or change of scenery the change of scenery is leaving your room to go by the pool or trying to go for a little bike ride around campus so that's definitely the toughest part for me
1: nice well Laisha Clarendon, thank you so very much. Uh, I really do appreciate your time.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Anytime.
1: Okay, yeah, be well. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious this is what you got to read. It's The Nation magazine. Go to the slash subscribe. And please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. I guess keeping with the WNBA theme, I wanted to give the Just Stand Up Award to Kyrie Irving, who's donating $1.5 million to pay the salaries of WNBA players who are not going into the bubble. That's some real solidarity out there from Kyrie Irving. It's inherently anti-sexist, especially given the... Horrific things people like Ted Cruz and other uh, right wing Flotsam and Jetsam are saying about the WNBA. So just mad props times a thousand to Kyrie Irving for standing up and standing with the WNBA. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. Sit your ass down. This might sound a little bit odd because, first of all, there are more than enough people to give this award to. they are the people in the Miami Marlins organization who are still pushing forward for that team to play, even though their team is a basket case of covid right now. Uh but you know, I want to give the just sit down award to players who are just going with the flow, who are taking a knee even though they have no real political convictions to do so, who are raising a fist so they can be down with their teammates, all that stuff, the performative activism. It might help team unity, but it doesn't help the struggle because it commodifies and actually dulls what is so important to be offered up right now, and that is radical dissent and the fight for radical change. So if you're not feeling this, I'm saying this to the athletes out there, if you're not feeling this, don't take a knee. Don't raise a fist. Do you. Let the players who have you know actually engaged with the politics take the political risks and then give them the space to be able to express what they think about. The last thing we need is taking a knee for team unity with the goal of winning championships because that's not what this moment is about we'll be back right after this with a quick word from edge of sports hey everybody out there this is dave ziron with the edge of sports podcast We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Thank you so much everybody listening. Thank you so much to my producer, David Tigabu, who's got a kick-ass podcast of his own called...
0: Run It Black.
1: Run It Black. And thank you to definitely Laisha Clarendon. Thank you definitely to Lindsay Colas who helped uh, me connect with Laisha Clarendon I really do appreciate that Lindsay and thank you to everybody out there listening support the WNBA not just politically but support them with your eyeballs because they put on a great game of hoops and hey there's nothing wrong with needing a little bit of escape in these pandemic days and there are a lot worse ways to escape than by watching the WNBA, which has been absolutely fantastic in terms of the product they've put on display for everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. Please stay safe. We are out of here. Peace.